What's the, the bottom line for you with God? I just asked the kids that question in essence. The church is about Jesus. The church is about Jesus' death and resurrection. If you were to ask that question to people on the street, people, if you could communicate, and we can now with many of them, across the world, across cultures and language barriers and even religions, what do you think others would say in answer to that same question? What, what do you understand God to be? And, and perhaps the, the best follow-up question then is, how do we somehow connect with this God? Or what has that God done, if anything, to connect with us? Is, is there a, a relational component available and possible with, with God? We believe, as, as Christians, we follow the, the, the Word of God as given to us in, in the Old and the New Testaments. We believe that, that Jesus Christ is the one that died and rose again. And, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But I want us to begin with that idea of what, uh, what people's expectations of God are. Because even as Christians, sometimes it can get a little off-center and maybe way off-center if we're not careful. So this morning, I want to begin in this, from, from Acts 2, we're going to actually go back to Matthew very briefly, and with this phrase in mind, this title given to Jesus, Son of David. In the ninth chapter of Matthew, and Matthew, by the way, has this phrase, this title, more than any of the other Gospels. It, it shows up 17 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not at all in John. But of those 17 in those three books, 10 of them are found in Matthew. Matthew has a particular interest in, um, in his own people. His Gospel was written with... The, the Jewish people in mind more so than the others. They were all Jewish people, so they, they, they kind of came with, with, with their presentation to a large extent. But Mark and Luke in particular were also writing to a Greek or Gentile audience as well. Matthew was very focused, and that's why you'll see more in Matthew than anywhere else the times where Jesus fulfilled the prophecy because the prophets were so important to, to their own people. All right? So, it's not surprising that Matthew has this title of Jesus more than the others because this title was very important to the, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, Son of David. And the first time we see that is Matthew chapter 9, while Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth. Several things happened there. Um, the end result of his time in Nazareth was that he was almost pushed off a cliff. And really not welcomed back. And that's where he says a prophet is never welcome in his own town. But before that happened, there was two blind men that called out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. It's the first time we see that in scripture. Son of David. Something about that, that phrase was important. Matthew chapter 20. Long time later, 
It's just, it's, it's probably the morning of Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. He's going to go into Jerusalem, ride a donkey, the crowds are going to shout and sing, and uh, they're going to put down their palm branches and their cloaks on the road, welcome him as a king. Well, before that, he entered from Jericho, which is a short distance from Jerusalem. And as he was leaving Jericho, just like Matthew 9, there's two blind men that call out and say, Son of David, have mercy on us. It's no coincidence. It's in Nazareth, where he was born, where, excuse me, he was born in Bethlehem, where he grew up in Nazareth. Um, it was a, the idea that the, the town was blind to who came out of their own city, Jesus. The Son of God was there, and they didn't know it. In Jerusalem, two blind men calling out, mercy on us, son of David, as he's getting toward Jerusalem. And they didn't know it. And they were also blind to him, which was, and we'll see that in what was going to happen in the next week as he goes to the cross and eventually rises from the grave. But um, as he then enters Jerusalem, and the throngs and the crowds are shouting and singing, what do they say? Hosanna, son of David. There it is again. This David thing. Now, I mentioned this a week or two ago. Um, David, when he returned the Ark of the Covenant to, to Jerusalem, there were, he, he had a lot of planning with this. There was a huge parade with, with, with music and feasts and, and people and musicians and singers. It was really an exciting thing. And David danced down the streets celebrating. David danced in Jerusalem celebrating the coming of God in the sense of the ark returning. Like God never left, but it was a representation. People felt more um, secure, if you will, or wow, the ark of the covenant is back. And, and David led that procession into Jerusalem. Jesus is in a procession into Jerusalem as, as being hailed as king. Hosanna, son of David. Same guy who had a parade there in David's life. And now we have the coming of the Holy Spirit in where? Jerusalem. And what does Peter do to describe this situation? We'll get back to this in a moment. But he also said, he quotes David. So David is woven in through all of these episodes, important episodes in Jerusalem, these big celebrations. You might even say it was Father, Son, and Spirit coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus himself talked about this in the 22nd chapter of Matthew. Now in this chapter, this is after Palm Sunday, before his his arrest and all that, so sometime during what we now call Holy Week, there was a very, um, a, a very direct attempt by the religious leaders to make Jesus look bad by discrediting him, asking him really hard questions that he, couldn't, he wouldn't be right no matter what he said. And Jesus always knew what to say to get out of it. And they were really getting frustrated by that. But they tried and tried and tried to get nowhere. They just looked worse. When they finally had used, used up all of their attempts to make Jesus look bad, then Jesus turns it around and he goes on the offensive. And here's what he says. This is Matthew um, 22, down at verse 41. 
While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then David calls him Lord. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. From that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus knew his own identity. Jesus knew when the people hailed him son of David a few days earlier that 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 was a title that was due him, that was right. And son of David was a phrase, it was almost like a catchphrase for Messiah. You wouldn't necessarily say Messiah, you would say son of David. It It was really the same thing. So the people's expectation was that someday God's going to send a Messiah like David. And he will be one who will lead us like David. A great military leader, a very passionate man, a good strategist, also a man with a whole lot of issues, a whole lot of troubles that he got himself into. And it hurt his family and his own nation because of that. But still, it's sort of like hearkening back to the good old days, right? I don't know what your good old days were and what made them good. But I think if you're honest with yourself, as as much as we sort of look back with, you know, those rose-colored glasses upon the good old days in our life, we have to be honest about, you know, there were some pretty tough times there too. And it was hard times. And nations can do that as well. We, we look back to, well, if only our country would return to pick an era, pick a decade. And you can probably find some good things, honestly, genuinely good things. But don't say, wow, that was great, without saying it. Also, at the same time, there was this problem. Okay? It's always both, and, and an honest assessment is what we need. And the people of Israel, in Jerusalem especially, wanted to the good old days of David. That was their idea of Messiah. If God is with us, he's going to send the Messiah, and this is what the Messiah is going to do. Well, God had something else in mind. He sent them this Jesus. This Jesus from Nazareth. Now we're back to our original text in in Acts chapter 2. Let's begin at verse 22. This is after Peter had just, he began his sermon, if you will. He had quoted Joel about the meaning of the strange events of the coming of the Spirit and the sound of the wind and what looked like tongues of fire coming upon the disciples. Then after he's done quoting Joel, he says this in 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you know yourselves. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Let's, let's stop there. This Jesus. Peter is, is clearly defining 
who Jesus is, what matters most about this Jesus. And he says he's from Nazareth. Nazareth, that same town that was blind to who their, who their own son was, that he was the son of David, even though the blind men called out about him. Nazareth, the place that was, um, if you were from Judea, you would look down upon those people up in Nazareth. Not necessarily in a hateful kind of way, like they would the Samaritans, but just sort of in a... At best, a mildly disparaging kind of way. Um, like, in our nation, okay, people from the South, okay? You might say X, Y, and Z about people from the South. From the South of the Midwest, they might say, well, what about those people in the Northeast, you know? And, and if you're the recipient of that little dig, Usually we can take it with a smirk on our face and say, yeah, that's us, that's us, okay. We're from the Northeast. We're a little more snarky. <laughs> Amen? I mean, come on. We, we, we'll, we'll, we'll say what's on our minds a little quicker than, you know, people from other parts perhaps that... No way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we can laugh about that. And that's the way they felt about Galileans. It was, ah, those Galileans. Well, nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. That's what they said when they heard Jesus was from Nazareth earlier on. So, but Peter doesn't hesitate. This Jesus from Nazareth, this miracle worker, signs, wonders from heaven, he did that. And he doesn't debate about that. This Jesus was given to you by God. God sent him here. This Jesus. And this Jesus was also nailed to the cross. Are we going? Paul, you better pitch Paul back there. Go ahead and advance it. It's not going. There we go. Thank you. This Jesus was nailed to the cross by both Jews and Gentiles. Now take another look at 23. Um, this man was handed over to you by, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, so God knew what was going to happen. And then <clears throat> it said, and you, that is the Jews, with the help of wicked men, it says in the NIV. That's actually an unfortunate translation. It really means literally the Gentiles. Now, if you were a Jew, you thought of all the Gentiles as wicked men, okay? And in this particular case, they were wicked. Pilate, you know, he, he uh, pretended like he didn't want this, but, you know, in the end, he, he washed his hands of it and said, go ahead, kill him. Okay, so, so in that sense, the Gentile people were wicked, but they were Gentiles. But the idea here is that both Jew and Gentile were in some sense responsible for Jesus' death. In fact, you might say in the larger sense, the Jewish faith, the Jewish practice of believing in God, the way they had been taught, sent Jesus to the cross. The Roman Empire, as represented by Pilate, sent Jesus to the cross. So the entire world sent Jesus to the cross. And but then also that he was, in the 24th verse then, let me move on to that, it says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He was resurrected. 
Peter doesn't go into a debate about the resurrection. Peter doesn't talk in great length about, now I know this is crazy, you guys, but here's here's how it happened, and I'm going to prove it to you. He just says it matter-of-factly. Why? Because he saw it. Because all the disciples who received this, this power saw it. Because there were many other witnesses that saw it. Now this is in Jerusalem not that long after the resurrection itself. So among this crowd of thousands, there was probably people throughout that group who heard or knew firsthand of someone who saw Jesus or claimed to. Now there could have been doubters in that crowd as well. We learn from scripture that the story that was circulated by the Romans was that the soldiers got overthrown by the disciples and the disciples snuck off with the body, you know, threw it somewhere that would never be found, destroyed it, and then concocted the story about the resurrection. Well, you know what else was probably known about the disciples after Jesus' death? They were hiding. They were afraid. They were terrified. They thought they'd be next one hanging on that cross. The only disciple that showed up at the cross is John. Mary and a lot of the other women were there. But the disciples themselves were scared. They ran. They hid. Do scared, running, hiding people come up with a plan to overthrow Roman soldiers, get away with it, and not only that, then go and live the rest of their lives knowing it's a big lie... And then giving their lives for it. And not one of them caving in while they're lighting the wood to burn them at the stake. Or whatever other form of martyrdom several of them suffered. They said, wait, 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 we made it up. It didn't happen. Put the match out. No. That never happened. Why? Because the resurrection did happen. And these people were witnesses of it. And they knew it. And so Peter just talks matter-of-factly. This happened. And you got to believe that it happened. You know that it happened. And I'll tell you more about it sometime. But right now, know that it happened. Now, the 25th verse then, what does Peter do? Here comes David. David said about him, son of David, one of Jesus' titles. Although that title isn't used here in the chapter, here is David again in Jerusalem, in a crowd, in some form, this time his words. So that gets their attention. He could have quoted a lot of the prophets, a lot of the Old Testament writers, but he chose David. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. He tells them about David's words as a prophet. When he goes on in the 29th verse, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here in Jerusalem to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath he would one, he would, <clears throat> that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. 
son of David. God raised him to life and we saw it. 33rd verse goes on to say, He's exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father. The promised Holy Spirit has been poured out, which you now see and hear. And then the 36th verse, oh, excuse me, then he goes on to quote David again in the 34th verse, For David did not ascend to heaven and yet said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, the one he described, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Thirty-seventh verse says this, at the first line, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, why were they cut to the heart? How, how deep was that cut? It wasn't just the hearers in that time and place, although that was true of all of them. It was also, as a nation, wow, we got it wrong. For a thousand years, we've been looking for a Messiah. It's been a thousand years from David to Jesus. For a thousand years, we thought someday someone like David's going to come back. God's going to send the Messiah. God's going to set it free. God's going to help us rule the world like David did. Maybe even greater than David. But that was the expectation. That was the assumption about who God is, who the Messiah is, and what God's meant to do. God sends Jesus. Well, and here's what they did. As a people, the Israelites waited 1,000 years for God to take on flesh. And to become one of them. And when he finally came, they killed him. That's why they were cut to the heart. It wasn't only that they killed the son of David, the Messiah. It was that they had the wrong idea about the son of David and Messiah all along. So it had to die was Jesus himself. What also had to die was those expectations, was those definitions, was those things about God that they believed in. And they had to broaden that. But first of all, they had to receive that. And that's exactly what they did. And we'll, we'll kind of pick it up here next week with, with the response to the crowd. And, you know, spoiler alert, 3,000 people believed that day because of what Peter said. And it just simply says they, they, they repented. That was their first step. They repented. They changed their mind. They changed course. They were going in one direction, and they had to go in another. And that was no small turn to give up on the, the fulfillment of the law of Moses by being good, by being right, by being seen righteous by God because I obey really well and we as a nation are good people. And their own history says it doesn't work. And they were blind to that like the two blind men in Jericho. But like the two blind men in Jericho, they were healed and now they could see. And their sight came and the understanding came that this Jesus, who they killed, is for them. And he loves them. And 3,000 came. And we'll talk a little bit more about what the the first church looked like and how they got started as we look at the the closing verses of this just awesome and powerful second chapter of Acts uh, in next Sunday morning.
question for you then as we wrap this up this morning is, what have you done in your heart to this Jesus? There's a lot of different versions of Jesus in our world. Jesus, the nice guy who said good things. But that resurrection stuff, no, that's miracles. That's wacky. Let's let that go. Jesus, the military leader? Jesus, the one who single-handedly picks leaders throughout the world and puts them there. Really? That Jesus? That's not the Jesus Peter preached about. That's not the Jesus that the apostles went across the world, all borders and nations, to, to proclaim the message of the love of God found in this Jesus, the forgiveness of your sins found in this Jesus, life eternal found in this Jesus, the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on this earth, regardless of border, regardless of king, regardless of president, regardless of any other circumstance or situation. This Jesus, this Jesus that, that sometimes people twist into getting what I want, getting my finances taken care of, fixing my relationships. If, if, if my life lines up and everything goes well, yeah, then Jesus must be with me. But as soon as trouble comes, well, Jesus is mad at me, or I didn't do something right, or you know what, Jesus just isn't. I mean, he obviously doesn't care or love me, or he wouldn't be hurting. Is that Jesus? Is that the one Peter's preaching about? See, we have to honestly look at our hearts when we say we love Jesus, we worship Jesus. Well, which Jesus is it? Stick with this one. Amen. Stick with this one. Died, rose again for you, all based on his love for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the start of the church in a very miraculous and exciting way. But it all comes down to a simple step of faith in each heart and life. That day in Jerusalem, 3,000 people turned in their heart and mind. And the word tells us they, they, they were baptized and they too received the Holy Spirit based upon their faith in the one whom God has sent in the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We acknowledge that, Lord God, and we ask you to move in our hearts to make that truth a reality and to, to put away the, the false Jesuses that might be in our hearts somewhere, or our expectations about him and what he should and shouldn't be doing or is or isn't doing in our lives, in our world, in our nation. Help us to let go of all that gets in the way of the real Jesus. And may that abounding love spring forth in us and to those around us. We pray this in his name. Amen.